And when I got started doing like a personal holding company and building kind of what I consider like a, a micro empire of companies, uh, it really didn't have a name. Like we didn't call them holding companies back then. Uh, you know, I started with one business uh, in 2013. I incubated my second business, 2015, third business. And then I've been incubating about two new businesses a year uh, since then and incubated two this year. And I'll hopefully do two or three next year. And that's just the, the pattern for me. Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC 10X podcast and today we have Michael Girdley with us. Michael spent the last 30 years building a 100 million plus holding company which owns 12 businesses. He's also built 195,000 plus Twitter followers and a newsletter with over 20,000 plus readers. In this episode, we'll talk about what is a holding company, what does he look for while evaluating a business opportunity. How does he decide between build, buy, or invest? Why is the Holco model gaining popularity? His content creation system and importance of personal branding in finding great opportunities to invest, hire, and acquire. Because learnings founding and acquiring businesses over the past 30 years, his advice for founders trying to build in the current investment market, and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey, Michael. So good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on. Um, I was trying for quite some time, but finally we have you here. Uh, to start things off, can we quickly have your story uh, and how you started investing? Sure. Uh, I live here in the United States, uh, in Texas. Um, I started uh, my business career uh, going out of state to go to college. I got a computer science degree. Uh, at a small school called Lafayette College. Uh, had an amazing time there, four-year letter swimmer, uh, did a bunch of different stuff. It was a great small pond for somebody like me to be in. Uh, after graduation, I moved to Silicon Valley. Uh, back then, Silicon Valley was still a thing, uh, and San Francisco was just kind of an afterthought, but I wanted to live in the city. Uh, so I moved into San Francisco, and that's where I lived uh, for the whole six years that I was there. Uh, and I started in different roles, and that was really this, the first phase of my career. I was working for other people at that juncture and jobs and uh, eventually uh, became the head of a, a – well, I moved from engineering. I started in engineering, and I eventually moved to marketing uh, and strategy because I discovered I liked people much more than I liked programming. And then really after that, uh, in my late 20s, my wife and I decided we were tired of the Bay Area. It's great, but it wasn't perfect for us. So we went and traveled for a while, and then we moved back here to Texas, and that started the next phase of my career, uh, which was being a CEO. Uh, and I was CEO of multiple companies that I either uh, joined because they were family business or that I created myself over a period of about a decade, decade and a half. And then about seven years ago, started the current phase of what I do in my career, which is work on companies uh, rather than in them. So I sit on boards, uh, incubate companies, sometimes acquire them. Uh, and really work at that level. And, you know, I, so I, if I have a CEO title, it means I'm doing something wrong. I really uh, spend a lot of time, uh, you know, at the intersection of operations and investing at this juncture. Uh, and I've uh, up to about a dozen businesses that I've done that with of all varying sizes, uh, anything from stuff with, you know, pushing 100 million in revenue uh, and hundreds of people to stuff that's just gotten off the ground because we incubated it four months ago. So that's my general strategy of what I'm working on now from an investing perspective. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And we'll try to unwrap different parts of it as we go on in this conversation. But first things first, since we are mostly 
focused on investing and there's a VC podcast and you're, you're yourself involved with multiple VC or investing kind of projects, namely Geekdom Fund, there is Effectual Ventures, there's Dry, dry Line Partners. Uh, so can you tell us what are the different kinds of investing or buying, acquiring that's happening at all these different places that you're involved with? hundred percent. Yeah. So I think other people really narrow down and decide, okay, I'm just going to do VC or private equity or incubating companies or uh, bootstrapping businesses. I think I find I'm much more of a curious person than a lot of those folks. Um, so I will vary across styles based on what I see as the types of opportunities out there. Um, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. You know, I see people like Bill Gurley or folks like that, or, you know, some of these really great venture capital investors or private equity investors who dedicate their whole life to honing that craft. And like, a, maybe it's a weakness or a strength, but I just don't have that in me. Like I can't stay focused on one thing. And if you look at my Twitter, for example, like what Twitter wants you to do, and I'll get on a soapbox and then I'll come back to the original question. But like what Twitter wants you to do is focus just on one particular topic and just like stay in your lane and that sort of thing. And I can't do it. Like I'm all over the place because I'm just curious about so many things uh, and that's the life I want to live. So, you know, investing wise, specifically for venture, I co-founded a venture capital fund here in San Antonio. It was the first venture capital fund in San Antonio in over 30 years. Um, we've gone on to, you know, raise several flagship funds and a bunch of SPVs that have invested in growth companies uh, across the nation and, and potentially outside of the United States a bit as well. And then other stuff I'm involved in are some private equity deals and then also just incubating companies from a bootstrap standpoint. That's pretty awesome. And while you're making these investments, uh, how do you evaluate a potential investment opportunity? What are the kind of things that you're looking at in them? Yeah, 100%. Uh, it really depends on the stage of the company. If it's a, say, if you're doing a buyout of a company that is um, long in the tooth, right? It's a mature business, it's established. The things you're going to look for there are like, okay, well, what's my investment thesis and and how am I going to make money by you know acquiring this company? And so notice I haven't said the word team or anything like that so far, um, but that's because that's when you're typically buying a company that's mature, the team isn't as important as, okay, what does the revenue stream look like and the business characteristics and the future of the technology and all that kind of stuff. Now, if you're looking at something at a very early stage, the earlier it gets and the closer to the idea stage you are, the more important the caliber of the team uh, becomes, right? If you think about the thing that's the hardest to swap out in any company, especially at the early stage, it's the team itself. You can change markets, you can change approach, you can change investors, like all that can be changed, but the founders and the folks that are there at the very earliest stage are the most critical things when a company is just getting off the ground. So when I'm investing in something very early, which is relevant for VC, whether it's incubating a, a, a non-growth business or incubating uh, a high growth business, like it's really about who is the team on the field when you get started, because that's the one thing you just can't change. Absolutely. Uh, and you're involved with these three kinds of approaches, which is build, buy, and invest, right? You're doing different kinds of things in different approaches, right? So yes. how do you, like, let's say you have an idea, you see that there is a market opportunity, how do you decide, should you build it yourself in-house? Should you buy it or, or maybe invest in another business that's already doing it? Yeah, 100%. 100% great question. So I use, um, I use an entrepreneurial and um, a business development philosophy called effectuation, uh, which is something that lives uh, outside of the world of lean startup and uh, of classic kind of VC waterfowl style creation of businesses. And uh, have you heard about effectuation before? Uh, no, I have not. 
Okay. I highly recommend it. If you take away anything from this podcast, like go learn about effectuation. And the, my sure. story with effectuation was, uh, it was like three or four years on Twitter. And I talked about how all these great entrepreneurs that I knew and business creators and investors, they didn't do lean startup. And they also didn't do like classic VC a lot of the times. They would get involved in VC, but not from the earliest stage, right? Like, and I saw that they would go out and do things like, instead of going to interview customers to start off with, they would like first start and say, okay, well, what am I really, really good at? Like, what resources do I have? Like, what network do I have that's an unfair advantage? And then they would go start exploring spaces around that. So in my case, for example, like, I have a computer science degree, right? So that gives me a background in technology that gives me an understanding of the way IT works. Like, does it make a ton of sense for me to go like explore business ideas or explore the construction space? Well, not really. Like, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, or like a great example is, is my buddy, Craig Fuller, who runs a great business called Freight Waves. If you haven't heard of it, you should totally check it out based in Chattanooga. But he grew up in an environment where his dad was in the trucking and freight business. So he's built a business that's really terrific called Freight Waves around the trucking and freight space. And so effectuation has these ideas. And one of the ideas is you start with what you're really good at, as opposed to in the VC world, you start about start with what's your vision or in lean, you start with, well, what are people's problems? And like, it starts in this middle with like, okay, well, what can I be the best in the world at? And then you start building ideas around that. And what I saw was amongst that principle and the five other ones that come out of effectuation, I saw these entrepreneurs, investors who were creating amazing things, but they weren't doing it like everybody else. And, uh, and there was this moment on Twitter where I like wrote this long thread and I described exactly how these people were building businesses. And this guy from, uh, from India, uh, and I'm going to totally brew his name, but it's Prasanna. And then the last name starts with K he's, he's my buddy, but I can't pronounce his name. Um, like he, uh, I'm sorry for being an American. I really apologize. Um, but, uh, he was like, oh yeah, that's, that's this thing called, uh, called, uh, effectuation. You should go check it out. And like, it opened my eyes that this thing I had seen all these great entrepreneurs, investors using was defined by this professor out of, uh, out of the university of Virginia. And like, that was one of those like weird Twitter moments where it's like, oh, like I learned something that changed my life because suddenly I felt safe. Like, oh, effectuation exists. Like I just didn't make this up. Like there's hundreds or thousands of people across the US doing it. And ultimately that's the thing I use to build companies. Um, and I think that's what I want to talk about is it ties into how I decide what I'm going to end up working on is it's much more introspective in terms of understanding, oh, hey, like I know how to, I know how small software companies work. Well, let's go incubate a company to go acquire those. Um, and that's what we did with Duro Software. But it starts internally as opposed to the other methodologies with start with your vision in the case of VC or start with, uh, or start with somebody whining, which is lean startup. Absolutely. That's quite interesting. And I just had one of those moments that you had wherein you realize that, okay, there's a concept that you've been using, but you don't know that there's a name to that thing, right? So yeah. how I use that in my life is basically, I, I run this VC podcast been more than a year, right? And I identified that most VCs aren't as good at marketing themselves, right? or they don't, just don't have the time for it. There's too much work being a VC itself, right? So I said, what if I offer my services of running the podcast, which I'm doing for myself, but I do it for them. Like they'll host it and I do it end to end for them, right? From pre-recording, doing the research for them, giving them the outline based on guest research. They just use that through the recording, maybe change that a bit. And then once it's done, I do everything from editing, packaging, publishing, social media clips, marketing materials, everything, right? 
So yeah. it, it's, it, it was basically effectuation in practice, right? Uh, but then I use my background on what I can do well and give that to someone who needs it, right? So exactly. that, that's a great mental model to use uh, for people wanting to build businesses and a good mental framework. Mm -hmm. uh, and also on the decision to should you build it yourself or should you invest in someone else's business? If you have personal expertise, then maybe you should build it yourself. If you don't, then, and you see the market opportunity, then maybe get someone who has that personal expertise, right? A hundred percent. And I think there's also, I think every investor, including me, goes through a learning experience, not only about learning how the world works, which every good investor, I think, is curious about the way the world works, but secondarily about understanding how you work and what you really like. And like, as I'm getting older, like I'm discovering I like less and less being a minority investor on somebody else's cap table. Like I did it for a while and I did it enough to discover like it's not really as fulfilling to me as being a huge chunk or the ideally the majority chunk, right? Like my business coach refers to it as the 0.1%. Um, we did an activity once where I went through like all my investments and uh, and he had me describe each each one all the way from where, you know, I own 0.1% in a tiny VC growth company to where I own 100% of another company, right? And everything in between. And, uh, and he said, look, you know what just happened, right? Look at your body language and look at how you talked about each one of these things. Everything you were happy about was stuff that you had the huge, a big stake in it and you had the ability to do impact on each individual like on that company you could make changes and when i own 0.1 like you could nudge the founder but i can't really make changes when i own 100 like it's on me and that's totally what's important and that's where i've grown as an investor like i am I, if people ask now i just tell them generally like i don't do minority investing anymore because i don't find it fulfilling like i may make i could make money doing it but i don't really care about that anymore like i care about like am i going to be happy doing this work and i i won't be so anyway, I think that's that second journey that investors go through is learning a lot about yourself as you go through your career. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. And just shameless plug, if anyone wants to, you know, interested in the podcasting services, if you're a VC, then feel free to reach out. And we have our website at podcastnx.com. The link will be there in show notes. So feel free to check that out. Uh, and Michael, you are someone that's also known for, known for the hold, hold, holding company model, right? And you also teach a course about it. You have your own holding company called Girly Enterprises, uh, where you have started multiple companies. Uh, so can you tell us more about what is the holding company model and why is it gaining popularity these days? Yeah, holding company holding company really feels like in 2023, like the way VC felt in like 2014, 2015. I don't know if you were in the game at that time, but like... That was very much a time where like everybody and their mom decided VC was cool and decided to start a VC fund. And for me, like I'm seeing the same trend happen, uh, happen around hold codes. And when I got started doing like a personal holding company and building kind of what I consider like a, a micro empire of companies, uh, it really didn't have a name. Like we didn't call them holding companies back then. Uh, you know, I started with one business uh, in 2013, I incubated my second business, 2015, third business. And then I've been incubating about two new businesses a year uh, since then and incubated two this year. And I'll hopefully do two or three next year. And that's just the, the pattern for me. Um, and so, you know, the holding company is the idea that there's this type of entrepreneurship that you can do where you're not the CEO of a business that you own. Right. And so historically, people would start a business, whether it's a construction company or whether it's a startup or whatever. They're the owner and they're the CEO. 
and the insight that is behind the, the holding company model is your job can become professional board member and owner of companies and other people can do the CEO job. And so, you know, there's folks like myself who start with one company, you add a second company, third company, you start to build those up and a bunch of permutations around that in terms of how people put it together. Um, so anyway, I know there was a second part of your question, but I gave you a very long answer to the first part. So I'll pause there. No, that's amazing. Uh, that's a great and simple explanation of what a holding company model is. So the second part of the question is basically, why is it gaining so much popularity these days? Uh, and also, I think there is an optionality factor that's still there. Because if you're building a venture-backed business, you do not have that optionality. You cannot start multiple companies, right? But with the holding company model, uh, which is not venture-backed, I believe, because then you've chosen one path, you've dedicated yourself to it, and you're going to go on that path. But with holding company, you can start multiple projects, right? And incubate multiple companies. So would love an insight into both these aspects, the popularity aspect and this optionality aspect, which can be interesting to founders. Yeah. Uh, so the popularity aspect for sure. Um, look, I think it's kind of parallel to the 2014 VC thing I talked about. There's a lot of people getting into it that maybe don't understand it or are doing it because it's sexy or trendy. Uh, it is, you know, I think it is something that when you talk about what it means to do this type of, I, I call it parallel entrepreneurship, like you're starting multiple companies at a time you have, and you have multiple things going on. That is a different like lifestyle than doing serial entrepreneurship. And I, I think to so the second part of your question, when you take VC money or you do that sort of thing, they expect there to be founders who are all in and making it their, their life, right? And that they're supposed to be all in and doing that thing. But when you do a Holdco model and your job is to be board member, chairman, uh, and supporter of the right CEO that's working for the company, that presents really a different lifestyle there, right? And it's a different choice in terms of what you do professionally. And so that's the thing, you know, in building the course and stuff like that, like I try to be really real with people about what the Holdco job really is. And it's not the right thing for most people, right? I think most people would be happier running a single business, doing serial entrepreneurship, running a single company, and, and doing that one at a time, being in the hot seat and being the CEO. Some people are wired like me, that they're happier to do what I'm doing uh, and be a partner to, to the CEOs, make sure that people are in the right seat and then support them in not only their journey, but the company's journey to be the best it can be. And so for me, like, that's what the one thing I really caution people about, like, hey, Holdco's are really sexy right now, but really understand what the lifestyle and the professional like tasks you do are in terms of running a Holdco, because it's radically different than running a single business. For example, if something bad happens in one of my companies, when you're the CEO, if I was a CEO, I run and try to fix it and I'm in control. I'm the pilot in the plane. We're going to get that thing done. I'm not that when I'm the Holdco chairman right? If something bad happens, my first response has to be, that sounds terrible. How can I help? Or what are you going to do about it? Like that's the different total, different mental model. And a lot of people I think are getting into the Holdco game and don't really understand like their lifestyle changes a ton when you go from CEO to, you know, to business owner and chairman. Yeah. So I think the main transition is that you are being less controlling and letting the CEO control most things, right? And uh, one more clarification I'd want from you is that how is this different or similar to a business incubator? So it's, there's, there's all kinds of flavors of what a, what a business incubator is. You have everything from people that are just giving out office space and asking for a couple percentage of your company. Uh, you have other ones that are very programmatic 
and don't take any equity in your company and that sort of thing. Uh, then you have some that are straight up venture studios. I mean, Ellie Corp, uh, Pioneer Square Labs, all these folks who've raised money for funds and are turning that into companies that they're incubating to full on venture studios. So there's all kinds of different permutations of that. Uh, most of them don't work <laughs> for varying degrees of reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the, the big difference between what I do and in terms of creating companies and crafting them uh, is generally I am uh, doing it all myself, whereas I think an incubator typically has much more of a scalable process and all that kind of stuff, which maybe I'll get there someday. But like for right now, it's very much handcrafted. I'm doing all the work, getting involved. I don't have much of staff uh, or a really rigorous process uh, in terms of those things. So that's how I would, di I would differentiate it. But I think we both like whether you're a formal incubator or venture studio or doing what I do, like I think we all like craft companies that hopefully someday become value and valuable and profitable. Absolutely, that's amazing. And and in the beginning of this conversation, you briefly mentioned Twitter, right? And how you are not very specific or follow a fixed path to how, how, what you post on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, and personal branding has been big on how the opportunities, what kind of opportunities come your way, even hiring people. You post about all kinds of stuff and it's well received, right? It, uh, you have around 190K, nearing 200K subscribe, uh, followers there. So... Can you tell us how that personal brand leverage uh, helps you with all these projects that you run and f even finding great talent? Yeah, 100%. Well, you know, my journey with Twitter started in 2020 during COVID. Like I was super bored and I like was lonely. So I just started tweeting and interacting with people there and trying to figure it out, you know, and that's how I really treat Twitter. And now I'm trying to figure out YouTube as well. Like I try to treat them like a video game, like a puzzle, and I'm trying to learn it and then trying to win. And how, what winning means is kind of different here versus a video game. I'm not trying to like kill other people. <laughs> I'm trying to like, like understand how to solve the puzzle. It's like Legend of Zelda. Um, so today, like because I've invested so much time and I love teaching, I love the practice of being on Twitter. I love like helping other people at scale. Because of all of that, it gives me an audience that then often uh, gives back to me like more than I ask, right? And that's just things where like, um, for example, like I'm learning how YouTube works now, like we're on video number seven, like I'm digging into it. And like the other day, um, a guy who's an acquaintance, like sat down and recorded like a 30 minute video, breaking down my entire channel and like coaching me how to do it better. I didn't ask him to do it. I didn't pay him to do it. It was just one of those things where because I give, give so much like on Twitter and I don't ask for much in return, like people give back to you. And that's just the power of scale, right? If you have 190,000 followers you know, even if 1% of them give back to you, that's 1900 people that are like pushing stuff back. And so, and, and then occasionally like, that's just like serendipity, like karma paying me back. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, which is like, occasionally I can make asks. And it's like, like part of the way I incubate companies now is through an, what I call an associate model. Like the last time I advertised for one of those roles, I had 400 applicants for it. And like, they were all super high quality. Whenever I want to launch like a new business, I can help them get going by tweeting about it and getting initial customers for it. And all those things, you know, are ways that I can directly leverage all of that investment I've put into the, um, put into the content. Absolutely. And, and one aspect that often gets missed out when people look at followers is the qualitative aspect of it, right? Uh, because there, there can be people with higher number of followers than you. Uh, but uh, it would be hard to find the quality of followers that you have right now because you've built it by posting high signal content. Most of your content isn't 
basically clickbaity, but it's more of learnings from your own career of things you've done and posting the processor processes that you've followed, uh, the operating systems you've followed, uh, and th those are very in detail. So, do, do you have a specific time set aside for you know writing content for Twitter because these are deep posts like uh, threads and stuff like that? They take time to write, refine. So, what's your system for that? Yeah. So, uh, yes, all the time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so. What I've started to do over the past couple of years is basically I time slice my time uh, four different ways uh, around how I'm going to spend my days. So uh, time slice number one is spending that around managing companies. So doing supervision, helping the businesses, one-on-ones with CEOs, all that kind of stuff. Time slice number two is what I call special projects. So that's like, hey, we're working on a deal, like I'm incubating a new company, we're hiring new people, like getting something started up. Like those are kind of what I call special projects. And those are things that tend to be start and finish. And then there's a third bucket, which I just started doing this year, which is the do nothing bucket. So that's like an ideation bucket. Like I go for walks and I think about things and I just read and follow my curiosity. And then the fourth bucket is 25% of my time is spent on content creation and reading and making new stuff, right? Recording videos, writing threads, editing stuff, uh, writing tweets and all that kind of thing. And the cool thing is like, there's a virtuous cycle amongst all those things. Like by practicing for half of my time and coaching businesses and building businesses and stuff, like I run across things that I'm like, oh, this is something like a smart person needs to know. And I can like encapsulate that, create it and turn it into a tweet. And then in theory, People will comment on that and I can often start to think better about it because of the comments and discussion that it starts and the virtuous cycle continues around all those things. So process wise, it's like do my job, but look for opportunities to create content, package that up and then share it and then take that feedback and do better next time. That's amazing. Uh, and while you're writing these tweets, is it like one shot? Okay, you thought, okay, this is a great idea. I should just pen, pen down my thoughts and then you directly post it or is it like, okay, you let it be there in your drafts for some time maybe refine it the next time and then post it after some time. How does that work? Yeah, it totally depends upon the uh, the content type. Um, I am ambivalent about it. So there's like, sometimes there's just the like, hey, this was interesting. I'm gonna spend two minutes and like write a, a well-crafted tweet and post it. Those happen all the time. Uh, if we're doing a thread, which is a lot of what we're doing, writing long form or threads or that sort of thing, we go through a whole editing process now. And I say we because earlier this year, like I've decided to scale my social media output and I've done that by creating and hiring a team around it. So it's a team of two, hopefully gonna be a team of three soon because we're hiring somebody for video who will lead the charge on that. And like we go through a whole internal process now where like other creators, we have a content calendar, like we're strategizing, we're doing data analysis based on what worked. Uh, we're partnering together on everything from my newsletter to tweets to to YouTube to figure out what the optimal schedule is. When should we publish what? How do we make stuff better? And now there's a whole, like a much more process to it. And then specifically like for threads and stuff like that, I'm over the top compared to most people in terms of how many revisions I'll do. Um, I've gotten now to where I can get a thread to where I'm very happy after two or three revisions. It used to take five or seven. Uh, but just like the reps and me doing hundreds and hundreds of threads uh, has gotten to me to where I can write them out very quickly and I don't need to edit as much because I just, I have it down in terms of the pattern that you need for YouTube. But anyway, I don't, I don't know if I gave you too much information there, but like there's sort of a system, but also it's ad hockey when we feel like it. It's, it's designed to be very free because I, I don't want it to be limiting. Absolutely. That's, that's pretty awesome.
Uh, and you've had a long uh, career yourself as a founder and now even helping other founders build their companies and incubating companies. So what would be your advice for founders building in these relatively difficult times when funding isn't that accessible? So what would be the approach that you suggest to founders they should take on uh, building their businesses? Yeah, I th there was a line I heard once, which I think is really good, uh, which was uh, how you'll build your company without any money is how you'll build it when you get money, right? So I think, you know, the best way, as always, to get, um, you know, to get a business funded is actually not to, to need the money, <laughs> right? And the same thing goes with loans, right? Banks, banks generally only want to loan money to people that don't actually really need the money. If you really need the money, the banks aren't that interested. Um, so I think there's still tons of opportunity out there. I think right now is really an environment where the great founders can separate themselves even more, right? When money is easy, it's really easy for mediocre founders and mediocre people to succeed. When money is scarce, like the cream really rises to the top. And I think this is an amazing opportunity, A, as a number of people like are you know, leaving the VC ecosystem because things suddenly got hard for, for non-special people. And B, that like you, you're an environment where there's not a lot of funding. So like your ability to work magic without a bunch of resources is really great. So yeah, I think, I think it requires a mindset shift where it's just like, oh, like capital is scarce now or relatively scarce. Uh, and then how do I like work around that and use my smarts as a founder to demonstrate, hey, like when I'm ready for money, it'll be out there because I've made so much traction, you know, without it being around. Absolutely. Totally agreed. Uh, being frugal is the approach to go for right now and do with what you have. And if you do that, well, you'll get all the money in the world, right? Uh, awesome. So uh, talking about where you are right now, uh, I believe you'd be pretty happy with where you are in your career right now uh, in what you've accomplished, what you built. So if I ask you this question that, uh, what is it that's something that you could have done that would have accelerated this path to be where you are right now, maybe five years prior to now, or maybe 10 years prior to now? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, look, as I, I look back on my regrets of my career, it is not from doing things that I did too many things or took too many risks so that I, it, I think in retrospect, it was that I waited too long to quit things, waited too long to try stuff, waited too long to split with a, a bad fit employee. Like all of those things were the constant pattern of, of my mistakes, right? Um, looking back on my 20s, I wish I had taken more risks. I wish I had tried more things. Instead, I played it safe, right? Instead of starting a company out of college, I went and got a job. Now, look, there's two sides to every story, right? Like my bank account is very different now than it was back in 1998. So I understand 1998 me is going to be thinking about the world very differently than, you know, 2023 me. So anyway, I think as I look back on it, I think um, I look at the quote unquote risks that I took and the mistakes that I made and like they felt really big at the time, but in retrospect, they've never really turned out to be that big. And if, you know, 23 year old me or 28 year old me was here, you know, I would tell them that, but I think I would also have some compassion to understand like your 20s are still a time when like the world's still pretty scary and you don't have it really figured out. And like, I think that's one of the benefits of being in my current age, which I'm 48, which is I don't feel old yet. I can see old is coming, but like, I also like feel like I have it figured out. So it's like a perfect like middle ground where it's like, I know what I don't like. I know what I don't want to work on. And I'm also not so old that I don't feel like working on it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so it's kind of a beautiful middle ground in terms of stuff. But anyway, that's a complex answer to it. Like, just because I'm, I'm so tired of like old guys like me or experienced entrepreneurs coming in and being like, you know what you got to do? Just burn the bridges. Just go take all these risks. Just go do all this stuff. And it's just like, or do it the way I did it. And it's just like, it's so annoying because like, it totally shows a lack of empathy for what it's like to be in your twenties or be in your thirties and have young kids or whatever. And like, like, anyway, I just want to ca give caveat with my regrets. I also think my regrets might kind of be BS <laughs> just because like, I understand what it was like to, in, to be younger. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, and one more thing I wanted to ask you is that uh, when you're thinking about uh, businesses to start uh, by a holding company, uh, I believe these businesses are also particularly different from venture backable businesses, right? So what are the criteria you're looking for, for it to be a good business to include in your holding company? Does it have to be low capex, you know, high margins? What are the kind of things that you look at? Uh, I've started businesses with low capex, with low margins. Uh, as I'm getting older, I am much more interested in low capex, uh, high margins. Those are much more fun. Um, I have noticed a pattern as, you know, I, I have to learn the lesson the hard way. Like I, I incubated a coffee business here a few years ago and it was like super high capex, you know, and super low margins. Like, ah, what am I doing? And we ended up selling it. Um, and the new owners are doing a great job with it. But you know, I think that I think that there is this interesting middle of companies that is not like subscale bootstrappable businesses like your typical digital agency or something like that, but at the same time has the ability to scale, not necessarily at the same rate as a VC backable business, but can, can get really big someday. And I consider that really this middle ground of businesses where I want to focus my effort and totally what I'm working on these days or just like businesses that can get to 100 million in revenue are not going to require a ton of capital to get there and can build and, and grow over time to that kind of place with the right team kind of the right right thinking behind it so i do i do have and i've built a whole checklist um, which for me is really good because every time i consider an idea i go through this checklist and say okay like should we pursue this idea no like it doesn't meet these criteria so we're not going to do it for example like can it reach hundred million in revenue or is it going to require a ton of capital or do we need VC to get there? Like if it says yes to any, you know, yes or no to those questions, like I'll, I'll throw them out the, the list. And for me, that helps me not get emotional about an idea and pursue it, even though, you know, there's some red flags with the, with the particular idea. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, now down to my last main question before we move on to the rapid fire round. Uh, and this one is about what's something that you've learned now uh, that you wish uh, you had learned earlier uh, in your journey. 100%. Um, okay, so this is something I think everybody gets wrong. Everybody, there's, I'm in a chat group, by the way, with like hundreds of people that are trying to incubate companies and stuff. And here's the way they all do it. And I tried this too. It doesn't work. They would all be like, I have this great idea and I've done some customer validation. I got this stuff and I believe in this idea. I need somebody to come in and operate it for me. And like expect, and they expected that they were going to find some great person to come in at a very early stage for a business and be like, okay, yep, that great idea, Mr. Incubator, you are a super genius. Uh, I'm going to work on that for you. And we're going to take it across the finish line. And like good people don't want to do that. Like good people do not want to sign up to work on your idea. And I think early on, I would try to incubate companies and I'd be like, I have this great idea. It turns out my ideas are crap. <laughs> like that's just, just let's just be real everybody's ideas are crap um and so what i've learned since then is when people come in when i bring them in for this associate role uh, when we work on incubating companies we develop the idea together 
and we may not even i'll hire people now without even an idea of what it's, the space is going to be not not to mention the idea i don't even know what space it's going to be in i know the criteria i want in a business that we're going to work on but i don't i don't expect that i even have any of that figured out and the thing that that transforms is when they are part of figuring out the idea they get emotionally connected to that idea as a potential co-founder and a person working on the business. When it's my idea, they have no emotional connection whatsoever. They didn't talk to any customers to validate it. They didn't do any of that kind of stuff. But I've just seen it over and over again. When I bring somebody in, we incubate a business together and it's our idea to figure it out as partners rather than my idea, like that totally transformed their mindset. And they go from just a hired gun to a total co-founder, you know, person who's all in on the business. So that's what I would tell people, you know, if you're building early stage stuff and you want to bring in partners, like don't expect them to work on your ideas because your ideas suck. My ideas suck too. Now, this is all different if it's a series A or series B or C startup, like that's a different ball game. But at this early stage kind of incubating thing, it just never works. Like you just, you got to bring somebody in before you figure out the idea, not after you figured it out. Awesome. Awesome. That's great advice right there for people looking to incubate startups and maybe the holding company model. So that'd be great advice for them. And now let's do the rapid fire round, uh, wherein I'll ask you five quick questions about the investing that you're doing via through different places. Uh, and you have to give five quick answers. Sounds good. I don't know if I'm capable of quick answers. <laughs> Everything turns into a five minute lecture. Right, let's go. Uh, Okay, let's try. So the first one goes, what other sectors and regions you invest in? Uh, I do a lot of investing solely in North America. Um, I love software, tech, online communities. Okay. Uh, that was pretty short. Uh, <laughs> I'm, <working. what's... laughs> I'm following instructions. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, what's the preferred stage of investment? Uh, I like stuff super early. By the time you hire, a, uh, you buy a CRM, I get super bored. Okay, awesome. Uh, what's your typical check size? Uh, I will incubate companies from anywhere from $1 to a million dollar investment. Awesome. Uh, where can founders pitch you in case there is a direct way? Uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can go to my website, girdley.com, G-I-R-D-L-E-Y.com, and there's uh, contact information there as well. Awesome. And where can our listeners follow you? Uh, check out my website, girdley.com. Uh, I am now a YouTuber as well. You can find me there. At, on, the name of my channel is Girdley World. And, uh, and then also on Twitter, and my handle is at sign Girdley, my last name. Awesome. Uh, I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes below so that our listeners can get there easily. Thanks so much for making time for this, Michael. And it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. A million percent. A million percent.